Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 9, and the title of my sermon is Why Christ Had to Die, Why Christ Had to Die. And just as a reminder, the writer to the Hebrews has been talking to Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians were being pressured to go back to the old covenant system with the old covenant sacrifices and priesthood and temple and all that. And the last time I preached in Hebrews was the first half, and it was really an overview of the tabernacle. And what the, the writer to the Hebrews keeps saying is that the old covenant had its place. The, the temple, tabernacle, priesthood, sacrifices, all that had its place, but now it's, being, it's already been fulfilled in Christ. And so he's telling them, you better not turn back to the old covenant sacrifices because if you do, you're turning away from God. You're turning away from Christ and you're actually turning away from salvation, okay? And so the the writer to the Hebrews is a preacher and he's a good preacher. And what good preachers often do is they repeat themselves a lot. They repeat themselves a lot, okay? They repeat themselves. They keep doing that. And, uh, and so that's what the writers of the Hebrews, you'll see him doing that, especially, especially now. So what I'm going to do for probably until I get into maybe chapter 11 is I'm going to move a little quicker than I have been because a lot of the things he's doing, he's already covered a lot. So the, the writer has been saying that, again, all this old covenant stuff points forward to Christ. All of it has been fulfilled in Christ, okay? So this morning we're going to be beginning at verses 15 of Hebrews 9 and we're going to go through the chapter and I normally go verse by verse real slow and even word by word I'm going to move a little faster today as I said so the the rest of the time at least for the next couple of chapters we're going to move a little bit quicker all right Hebrews 9 verse 15 he's talked about how the new covenant cleanses our conscience because we get real forgiveness of sins okay and he's talking about this only comes through Jesus and his death and then verse 15 he says Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay? So it says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. We've talked about this. The word mediator means go-between. A mediator is one who brings two parties together. And Christ is that mediator between God and man because he is the God man. He's fully God and he's fully man. So he brings God and man together. So that's a mediator. But the word mediator can also mean one who institutes something or makes something effective. And I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying that Jesus is the one who makes the new covenant effective. He brings the new covenant into existence. And, And so what I mean by that is Before Jesus came to earth, God made promises, like we looked at in in Jeremiah 31, it was Hebrews 8, God made promises of the new covenant. So he promises that that his people would have an intimate relationship with him. He promises that we'll have real heart change, real heart transformation. 
and that we'll get true forgiveness of sin. So God promises all these things in the new covenant, but how did all these promises in the new covenant go into effect? Or when did they go into effect? It only happened through Jesus. It only happened through Jesus's death. So that's what he's saying here, that Jesus is the mediator. He's the institutor of the new covenant. He's the one who brings it about by his death. So let's read verse 15. I'm going to take out the middle clause. And so it reads like this. So it's saying, he, Christ, is the mediator or institutor of a new covenant. And then it goes on and says, since a death has occurred. So Christ is the institutor of the new covenant since a death has occurred. So this is talking about Jesus' death. So Jesus, by his death, institutes the new covenant. And what is the result? Well, that's the middle clause there. He says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So those who are called. Everybody who is a follower of Jesus is called by God. He calls us. The Holy Spirit calls us. We hear. We hear him. Christ calls us. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. He says, I know them and they follow me. So he calls and his people hear him. Now, there are people that, that hear this outward call, but they don't respond. They don't hear. They don't have ears to hear Jesus' call. But his sheep hear his voice. They recognize. Oh, I recognize. I hear his voice. And we follow him. So then it says, so that those who are called, what? May receive the promised eternal inheritance. So God promises that he's going to give us an eternal inheritance. Now, think about the word inheritance. When you inherit something... It means you receive something and it's from somebody who has died. That's what an inheritance is. So you would receive a gift, an inheritance. The gift that we are going to inherit, the gift that we do inherit is salvation. And he says it's eternal. So it's this eternal inheritance. We, we inherit eternity. Think about that. We inherit eternity. And this is the gift that we receive from God. But it could only take effect because Jesus died for us. That's how it took, to, took effect. That's what he says in verse 15. He says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since, now think about this phrase, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, I think this little section here is the most important part of this whole passage right here in verse 15 because the writer is saying the writer is saying that because of Jesus's death he brings about the promises of the new covenant so again Jesus is the mediator in the new covenant and he makes those promises effective and the result is we who are called by God will actually receive the eternal inheritance the eternal salvation that God promised and this is huge this phrase look at that phrase in verse 15, Hebrews 9, verse 15, it says, The transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, so he's talking about Old Testament believers who lived before Jesus came to earth. So the people of God in the Old Covenant, all of them were sinners. So this was long before Jesus came. So think about the people in the Old Testament, long before Jesus came, how were they saved? Let's use, let's use David as an example, okay? David loved God, but David was a sinner. So he, and he lived a thousand years before Jesus came to earth. Well, how was David saved? 
Was David saved by the animal sacrifices in the old covenant system? Was David saved by the death of those animals? No. And the writer of Hebrews has been saying this over and over again. That those animals in the old covenant system, the death of those animals actually could not take away sin. So the question is, how was David saved? By Jesus. By Jesus' death. That's what the writer is saying here when he says a death has occurred. So I'm at Jesus' death that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Jesus' death redeemed, saved God's people from the transgressions committed from the first covenant, from the old covenant. So what the writer is saying is that even under the old covenant, the people of God were saved by Christ's death. So what it's saying is that Jesus' death was effective for all of God's people throughout history. And it works like this because God is outside of time, right? God transcends time. So when God makes a promise, he's looking at all of time. He's not stuck in one moment like we are. God transcends time. In the same way, Jesus' death transcends time. And that means that Jesus' death was effective enough to cover all the sins of all God's people throughout history. Going back to Adam and Eve, all the way forward to the very last person who puts their faith in Jesus right before he returns. That whole group of people are are saved by Jesus' death. And that's what the writer is saying here, okay? All right, right, I'm going to skip verses 16 and 17 for now. We're going to come back to it. But look at verse 18. So it's Hebrews 9. Verse 18. And, and what y'all want you to see is just in the first few, especially, well, in the whole passage, notice how many times he talks about blood, okay? This is talking about animal sacrifices. Notice how often he's talking in this little section about death and blood, okay? So look at verses 18 to 20. It says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Now try to picture what's going on here. Moses. And it said, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he covers everything with blood. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. I'm going to pause there just for a second. That little phrase right there when he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This should make us think about what Jesus said on the night before he was crucified. When he instituted the Lord's Supper. And every week when we take the Lord's Supper, we read Jesus' words. Where he says, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So again, this word, blood and covenant. Okay, So Jesus was saying in, that in his blood is the blood of the new covenant. So in the old covenant... Moses is talking about the blood of animal sacrifices. And right here it says, Moses says, this is the blood of the the covenant. But again, Jesus, right before he died, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So again, every week before we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus died to make effective the promises of the new covenant. Jesus did that for us. All right, let's pick up again in verse 21. Again, notice the repeated references to blood. 21 and 22. And in the same way, he, Moses, sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then this famous phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
So try to picture in your mind the inside of the tabernacle and everywhere you look, there are bloodstains. So you walk into this beautiful tabernacle, this tent that we talked about last time, had those two rooms, and everywhere you look is just covered with bloodstains. So what's the purpose of this? What, what's the point of all this? Is there a point to all this blood being everywhere inside the tabernacle? Well, it turns out there was a point to it. And God was making this point very clear. God was reminding the people of Israel, and he's reminding us of this fact, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It's Romans 6.23. With all this blood being sprinkled everywhere in in the tabernacle, with all these animal deaths, God was giving a visual picture of this fact. Again, that the wages of sin is death. In fact, I was in the third through fifth grade Sunday school class this morning. We were talking about the fact that our sin deserves death. And what I want to stress this morning is that there is a moral law woven into the very fabric of the universe. And the moral law is this, that the wages of sin is death. That's the point of all this blood being shed before the priest would come into the presence of God. They had to scatter all this blood. And the reason God required got Moses and the priests to sprinkle this blood everywhere in the tabernacle, again, it was to remind us that we are sinners and our sins deserve death. We deserve God's judgment. Our souls deserve death. That's the moral truth that God was showing with all these animals being killed, with all this blood. And God cannot have sin in his presence. God is holy. And he can't just wink at sin. He can't just sweep sin under the rug. And the only way that sin can be forgiven is when a death occurs. That's what it says in verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And by the way, when it talks about blood, the shedding of blood, it's talking about life. Like the Bible talks about life is in the blood. So the picture is that that life is actually in the blood. So when we're talking about shedding blood, I think Pastor George talked about this. It's not like Jesus could cut his finger and then we're all saved. He had to die. Okay, so we're talking about blood, it's talking about, about death. So again, there is this absolute moral law. It's a truth, a fact, that because of our sin against God, we deserve death. It's like the law of gravity. What if you don't understand the law of gravity? Does the law of gravity apply to you if you don't understand it? What if the law of gravity, what if you don't agree with the law of gravity? Or what if you don't like the law of gravity? Does it apply to you? Yes, it still applies, whether you agree with it or not, or like it, or whatever. This is a fixed law, the law of gravity. It's the same way with moral truth, that sin, and this moral truth, that sin deserves death. And that's what God was showing with the blood and animal sacrifices, that he is holy, and we are sinful, and the wages of sin is death. It's a fact. And you don't have to believe in it, it doesn't matter. You can say, I think I'm a good person, and I don't deserve death. Well, God was showing, you're wrong. You do. Because the fact is, you and I are sinners, and we deserve death. That's what the blood was for. What if you say, well, I don't agree with that? That's a silly and primitive religion. Doesn't matter. You can agree or disagree with it. It doesn't matter. It is a moral fact. It is, as I said, it is woven into the very fabric of the universe that our sins deserve death. If you've ever read or seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, The characters talk about deep magic. They talk about this deep magic. And they say the deep magic refers to these laws placed into Narnia 
at the time of creation by the emperor beyond the sea. That's talking about the creator, creator God. So there's this deep magic woven into Narnia. That's the way it is in ours. It's the same way in our universe. There's this deep magic. And the deep magic that God places into the moral fabric of the universe is that sin deserves death. And this deep magic is based on the character of God. As I said, because God is holy and he is just. And he must punish sin. Okay? So all these animal deaths in the Old Covenant sacrificial system, all this blood sprinkled everywhere in the Old, in the tabernacle, it was again a picture showing us over and over again that sins deserve death. it's, It's fixed in the moral law of the universe. Okay? But... As Aslan tells the witch in Narnia, there's a deeper magic still. And this deeper magic says that if a sinless one was killed in the place of us traitors, then we can receive forgiveness and salvation. And as Aslan says, then death starts to work backwards. Okay? So the only way we could receive forgiveness and salvation is if a sinless one died in our place. And that's why Jesus had to die. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about over and over again. When he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. All right, let's look at verses 23 and 24. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, heaven itself, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. All right, we've talked about this a bunch, so I'm going to go over it quickly, but the earthly tabernacle, or the earthly temple too, was a copy or a shadow of heavenly realities. So there are heavenly realities, realities in heaven, and the tabernacle, the tent, and and temple, and all that, was just a a shadow or a picture pointing to these heavenly realities. So when the blood was sprinkled on all the stuff in the earthly tabernacle, it was symbolically purifying the tabernacle. In verse 23, it says that, that, then it says this in verse 23, that the heavenly things, okay, this confused me. The heavenly things, the throne room of God in heaven, it said this had to be purified with better sacrifices, this is talking about Jesus' death, okay, him dying for us. So the question I had is, why would heaven, the throne room of God, why would heaven need to be purified with Jesus' blood? That didn't make any sense to me. Because was there any, is there anything sinful about heaven? There's nothing sinful about heaven. Well, the reason the throne room of God needed to be purified, this is really symbolism. It's not like Jesus' blood is scattered over the, the heavens, but, but it's, it's a symbol. But it's saying that the throne room of God, the heavenly realities, needed to be purified. It was not because there was anything wrong with heaven. It was because we would defile it because of our sin. If we come into the presence of God, we defile it because of our sin. So in that sense, God's throne room would need to be purified with Christ's sacrifice because of our sin. You can actually see this in Leviticus 16. Pastor Daniel is not in Leviticus 16 yet, but he and I have talked many times about how his study of Leviticus goes along perfectly with Hebrews. And in in Leviticus 16, it's talking about this passage, about the tabernacle being sprinkled with blood. But there wasn't anything sinful about the tabernacle, okay? Just like there's nothing sinful about the throne room of God. But this is Leviticus 16, It's verses 15 and 16, and God is speaking, and he says this, that he said, Aaron must sprinkle the blood inside the tabernacle 
Why? Because the tabernacle is wicked? No. He says because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, because of their sin. So it's the picture of the presence of God. When us sinful people come into the presence of God, we defile it. And so it must be purified. In the same way, the throne room of God in heaven symbolically needed to be purified by Jesus' blood. Because when we come into God's presence, wherever we go, we don't feel this way, wherever we go, we defile it by our sin. And we can't come into the God's presence because he can't have sin into, in his presence. So it, we needed to have it purified by Jesus' blood. And Jesus did that through his death. All right, let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26. This is talking about Christ. It said, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Verse 26, for then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus died once at the end of the old covenant age. It says at the end of the ages. So it's talking about at the end of the old covenant age and now we are in the last days. So Jesus had to die once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what it says. So the old covenant priests had to offer sacrifices over and over again every single day. And it never stopped. And what that did was show that those animal sacrifices actually couldn't take away sin. They were simply pointing forward to Christ. But Jesus' one death paid for all the sins of his people. As I said, his death on the cross transcends time and it, it paid for the sins of all of God's people throughout history. All right, verses 27 and 28. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It says, just as is appointed for a man, for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Every one of us is going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, every one, one of us is going to die. And after that comes judgment. But because Jesus died, the death that we, his people, deserve. If you've put your faith in Christ, then he has died in your place, in your stead. And we will not face God's just punishment. Because Christ himself offered himself as a sacrifice. As it says here, to, to bear the sins of many. See that in verse 28? To bear the sins of many. To bear means to carry, right? The right to bear arms is the right to carry arms. Bear means to carry. So on the cross, Jesus carried our sins. He took upon himself all the sins of God's people. All of our sins were symbolically placed on Jesus on the cross. And all the penalty of that sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. He carried the sins of many. And then it talks about Jesus' return. So it says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Jesus returns, he's not going to deal with sin. He's already dealt with it. Jesus is not coming back to die again. When Jesus returns, he's coming to save all those, it says, who are eagerly waiting for him. And I'll ask, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Are you eagerly waiting for him? If not, that's a bad sign. If not, that you need to examine yourself, okay? Because when Jesus returns, he's going to save us forever. That's what it says. He's going to work 
about a great reversal. I talked about this in the Easter sermon. Death itself is going to work backwards because Jesus is going to conquer all that when he comes back. When Jesus returns, he's going to reverse everything in this world that is sad and broken. Everything. He's going to give us, his people, resurrected bodies, and he's going to make this earth new. And we will experience all the beauty and joy and love that we've longed for when he returns. So new life is coming in the resurrection when Jesus returns. And we really can't even imagine how good it's going to be. All right, let's go back to verses 16 and 17. I skipped over these earlier. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. It said, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. In my translation, the word will is used in both, wor- in, in both verses. The King James has testament, and in some translations, the word is covenant. Anybody have covenant in, in those verses? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay. So covenant, it's either will or covenant, okay? It turns out that every single time in this passage when it says either covenant or will, it's the same word, okay? It's the same word. It's this Greek word diatheke, and it's the same word. So my translation has will. They've changed it up. And the reason they did this is because that Greek word can mean either covenant, like a contract between two parties, but the same word can mean will, like last will and testament. So it turns out, I'm not going to get into a huge thing on this, but it turns out there's a big argument over these two verses, okay? Some scholars are saying that the writer is comparing new covenant promises to a will. And so what they're saying is a will doesn't take effect until the person who made it dies, right? So if I make a will and I say I leave all my property to my wife, well, that will doesn't take effect as long as I'm alive. That will is just a piece of paper. It has no effect at all. It only takes effect when I die, okay? So what that view is saying that the promises of the new covenant are like a will. They're saying the writer's comparing this to a will and saying all these promises came about because Jesus died. So that's one view. It makes sense, right? Another view is this. This is very technical stuff. I'm not going to spend time on it, as I said. But the writer is saying that Jesus died to, pr- to pay the price for the covenant that was broken by humanity. Okay? In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die because you broke the covenant. And the only way you could inherit the covenant promises, the only way God could, could forgive you is if Jesus paid the penalty for the broken covenant. Okay? Again, that's the debate. If you want to study it, and I'm sure you do, right? I'm sure you do. Then go for it. Um, I'm not going to lose any sleep over this because both arguments make sense to me. It's not a big deal. But I do want to say this. I want to talk about covenants, okay? I want to talk about covenants in the Old Testament because I think this is a huge deal. In the Old Testament, when people would make a covenant, they would actually cut a covenant. That's the phrase that they would use. They would say, let's cut a covenant between us, okay? So let's say that I'm the leader of this big extended family and that you're a leader of a big extended family. Let's say you live, we're out in the plains of Israel somewhere, okay? And I, my extended family, say 200 people are in this area and you're like two miles away and you've got the same thing. And we make a covenant. We're gonna cut a covenant. And here's our covenant. If anybody attacks you or your family then I will get all my fighting men and we'll come to defend you, okay? They would do this, this happened a lot. So I make a promise 
that if anybody attacks you, I'm going to gather all my fighting men and we're going to come help you. And you're going to make a covenant and you promise to come and defend me if anybody attacks me. Okay? So here's what we would do in front of, in front of witnesses. You, our families would make a covenant. Okay? And what we would do is you and I would take some animals and we would kill them. And then we would cut them in half. So we would take like a calf, we'd kill the calf and cut it into two pieces. Then we would take a goat and we would kill the calf and cut, I mean, kill the goat and cut the goat into two parts, okay? And we would do all these animals. And so we would have half this, the animal here, half the animal here, another half here, and, it, and we would have this open area in between like an aisle. And so what we're doing is, then we make this covenant promise, then I walk between the pieces, I walk between the parts, okay? And then you walk between the parts. You know what we're doing there? Here's what we're doing. We're saying that if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Okay? In other words, I promise to help you out if you get attacked. You promise to help me out if I get attacked. And if either one of us breaks the promise, then what happened to these animals getting cut in two, that's going to happen to us. We're, pro- we're promising to do this. This is a solemn thing. So may I be, if I don't help you out, may I be killed and cut in half just like these animals, okay? This is Jeremiah 34. I want you to, we've got a slide on this. Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20, and God is speaking, and this is so powerful. And you'll see the picture that I've told you about this covenant. Look at Jeremiah 34, 18. It says, in the, this is God talking. And he says, and the men who transgressed my covenant And did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, God says, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And God says, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You see what God is saying? The people of Israel made a covenant promise to be faithful to the Lord. So they symbolically walked between the parts of the animals. They made this covenant with God, but they broke it. They sinned against God. And therefore God says, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two. In other words, they're going to die. They promised, they walked between the parts, they made a covenant promise, but they sinned and broke the covenant. And now they're going to die. Okay, so that's the picture that would happen. And so everybody knew that that's what happened in, old, in those covenants, when you cut a covenant. Now, here's the amazing thing. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. So we're thinking about, remember, we're thinking about Hebrews 9, the new covenant, and Jesus dying in our place. Flip to Genesis chapter 15, if you have your Bible. And this is God's covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram, or Abraham. We're going to call him Abram because he's not yet Abraham. So God makes a bunch of promises to Abram, and then Abram asks this. He asks, how can I be sure that you're going to keep your promise, God? And here's the amazing thing, okay? Look at how God responds. Look at Genesis 15, verses 9 and 10. Look what God says, and, and try to get the picture in your mind. God said to him, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer, 
three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, and Abram brought God all these, listen, and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. So God, so God tells Abraham to take these animals and Abram cuts them in half, okay? All these animals now in half. So there's this aisle. All these animals are killed. The heifer, the goat, the ram, the birds. All this is happening. So you see what's happening. God is cutting a covenant with Abram. Now here's what, when I read this, here's what I expected to happen. I expected Abram to walk between the parts of the animal. I expect Abram to make covenant promises to God to show that Abram was saying that he would be faithful to God. But that's not what happens. And it's really incredible what happens next. God doesn't require Abram to walk between the pieces. Instead, God puts Abram to sleep. Look at verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dread and great, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abram goes to sleep. Then after Abram was asleep, God makes more promises to Abram. And then we read these incredible words. Look at verses 17 and 18. See if you can figure out what's happening here. Verse 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch represent God. You see what God is saying? If you're a Christian, I want you to think about this. I want you to rejoice in this because this is what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to make these covenant promises to you. I'm making a covenant with you. And God says, if there's any violation of the covenant, and this is the incredible part, God is saying, God is saying, then may I be killed and cut in two like these animals. Now, can God die? In a sense, God can't die, right? God can't die. But God is saying, if the covenant is violated, then may I die. And what does Abram do? Did Abram walk between the pieces too? No, he was asleep. <laughs> he was asleep. And this is what God has done for us in Christ. Think about this. The covenant was broken by each of us. We violated the covenant by sinning against God. Every day of our lives, we break the covenant by sinning against our Lord. We should be like those animals cut in two. We should die for our sins. But God doesn't make us walk between the pieces. And remember, the covenant has been broken by us. That means someone has to be cut in two, right? But if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and it's not you, you're not going to be cut in two. You're not going to experience death, soul death. Instead, this is what blew me away, Jesus passed between the pieces. Jesus went between the pieces. Jesus is cut in two for us. Jesus is slaughtered for those of us who are trusting him. We're the ones who should be cut in half. We're the ones who should die for our sins because we broke the covenant. But Jesus passed between the pieces and he was killed, was cut in two for our place. And just like Abram, we rest. We just rest. Brothers and sisters in Christ, why did Christ die for us? Why did he pass between the pieces for us? Why did God make these covenant promises to us? And despite our sinfulness, our breaking the covenant, why did God send his son 
to pass between the pieces, to be cut in two for us. Why did this happen? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because of God's love for us. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus passed between the pieces for us, covenant breakers. I mentioned earlier on that that Jesus' death on the cross transcends time. Something else that goes along with and it goes right along with it because the love of God is focused on the Christ, uh, on the cross. God's covenant love for us transcends time. Not only Jesus' death for us transcends time, God's love for us trans, transcends time. And I'm going to paraphrase something from Ian Hamilton. And this is the application of this, okay? This is, this is not just like theological talk. This matters for our daily lives. Hamilton says this, One of Satan's most destructive schemes is to cause us to doubt whether God really loves us. Satan often uses disappointments. Satan often uses dark times in our lives to try to get us to think like this. Well, maybe God has abandoned me. Or maybe God has just lost interest in me. Because we think like this, if God really cared about me, would he allow this situation into my life? If God really loved me, would he allow this person to hurt me? Or would he allow this thing to happen? And at times like this, we need to redirect our minds to the truth of God's everlasting love. We need to remind ourselves of how Jesus went to the cross for us and how he passed between the pieces. Because Jesus' death transcends time and God's love for you transcends time. Jesus' love for you transcends time. I want you to think about something. There, there's a thought I've had this week. I shared it with a small group yesterday. And it's refreshed my soul in a big way. And I want to pass it on. It's about God's everlasting love. The Bible says that God's love is everlasting. And normally we think forward. All the way in the future, God's love will be with me. But God's everlasting love also goes backwards. And here's what I mean by that. This is a quote from Gerhardus Voss. And I think we have a, the quote. He said, the reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. Here's another way of saying it, and we have another slide on it. God's love for you will never end because it never began. You understand what I'm saying? God can't learn anything, right? If God could learn something, that means he didn't know it at one point, and now he knows it. In the same way, God, so God can't acquire information. And that means there never was a time when God did not know about you. God has always known you. Before the universe was created, God knew everything about you. He saw you, he knew you, he loved you. It transcends time. And just like Jesus' death transcends time, in the same way God's love for you transcends time. God's love never began. So God's love for you did not have a starting date. There was no beginning point when God began to love you because before the universe was created, when all there was was the triune God. Even then, God knew you and he loved you. The Son of God never began loving you. There was never a beginning point for his love for you. And that means that there's no ending point for his love for you. His love for you transcends time. It's an everlasting love. God's love for you will never end because it never began. And God shows his eternal love for for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. His love for us has no beginning and no end. And yet Christ passed between the pieces for us. He died for us. 
Church, this is God's love for you in Christ. And I pray you will rejoice in that, especially when you're going through difficult times. Rejoice in the fact that God's love for you can never end because it never began. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I love you. We love you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the way you care about us. Thank you, Jesus, that your death transcends time and it covers all of our sins, even the sins we'll commit tomorrow or whatever. You love us. It doesn't make us want to sin against you because you love us. I pray that it would help us to grow in holiness, knowing that we want to please our Father, we want to please our Savior. So help us understand that, Lord. And I do pray it would be an encouragement for us, your people, to know that because your love for us never had a beginning, it won't have an ending. And in times of struggle, in times of darkness, when we may feel that you've abandoned us, we may feel that you just lost interest in us, I pray that we would understand and really truly believe just how much you love us. And your love for us is an everlasting love. So help us with that, Lord. And I pray that we would always redirect our minds to the cross. Jesus, you laid down your life for us. You passed between the pieces in our place so that we would not have to endure it when we face death. So we praise you. We give you praise. Lord, help us again to grow in holiness and grow in love for you and love for other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.